DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas. The United States Catholic Catechism for Adults is an adaptation of the Catholic Catechism. It serves as a resource for those who wish to become acquainted with Catholicism. It is an invitation for all the faithful to continue growing in the understanding of Jesus Christ and his saving love for all people. The United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Chapter 7, The Good News, God Has Sent His Son A Good Man in Old New York Pierre Toussaint, you are the richest man I know. Why not stop working? Then, madam, I should not have enough for others. Pierre Toussaint was born in Haiti in 1766 and raised as a slave at a time when it was a French colony. A small group of slave owners made fabulous fortunes from trading sugar, coffee, indigo, tobacco, and fruit. 700,000 black slaves, brutally beaten and terrorized, made this possible. Baptized and raised a Catholic, Dusant was one of the lucky ones, a house slave instead of a farmhand. Treated humanely by the Burrard family, he was brought with them to New York when they fled the upcoming slave rebellion. They arrived around the time that George Washington was inaugurated as the first president of the United States. Burrard assigned Pierre as an apprentice to a Mr. Marchant, one of the city's leading hairdressers. Pierre found he had a talent for this work and soon became a success at it. Wealthy women spent vast sums to acquire the elaborate hairstyles of the day. The Berards allowed Pierre to keep a portion of his earnings. Back in Haiti, the slaves rebelled and drove out the French government. An attempt to retake the country by Napoleon's invasion force failed. The Berards lost their property and a source of income. Berard died and left his wife without much to live on. Toussaint quietly took over the support of Mrs. Burrard and the household. In gratitude, she freed him from his slave status, after which he married Juliette Noel. He used his considerable income to support charitable causes. He conducted a fundraising effort among his rich clients of differing religious persuasions to build a Catholic orphanage. Mother Elizabeth Seton sent three sisters to start the orphanage. He ministered personally to victims of the plague. He labored to dispel religious and racial prejudice in the city. One of his customers, Emma Carey, wrote about his dignity and Catholic witness. His life was so perfect, and he explained the teachings of the church with a simplicity so intelligent and courageous that everyone honored him as a Catholic. He would explain the devotions to the Mother of God 
with the utmost clearness are show the union of the natural and the supernatural gifts in the priest. Pierre worked up to the last two years of his life before dying at age 87 in 1853. Among the many others, the New York newspapers mourned his passing. The New York Post reported, Toussaint is spoken of by all as a man of the warmest and most active benevolence. He was buried with his wife Juliette and niece Euphemia in Old St. Patrick's Cemetery on Mott Street in New York. Pope John Paul II declared him venerable, an important step in Toussaint's cause for canonization in December of 1996. Since then, his body has been reburied in the crypt of the archbishops in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. If canonized, he would become the first black U.S. canonized saint. As a married man, he was able to show us how a spouse may admirably fulfill God's call to holiness. He was a true and heroic disciple of Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that no sooner had our first parents sinned than God hastened to promise them the hope of redemption. God loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to save us. In this chapter, we review the mysteries of Jesus found in the gospel and the doctrinal teachings about him that were taught by early councils of the church. Venerable Pierre Toussaint was motivated by profound love of Jesus Christ and his inspiring story aptly leads us to a prayerful study of our blessed Lord. Welcome Archbishop Lucas. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you. We are discussing from the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults, Chapter 7, The Good News, God Has Sent His Son. This is the good news, isn't it? The person of Jesus, that's the good news. This is the good news, and as Jesus himself teaches and as the church reflects over the centuries, the good news of salvation is a person. It's not a message or a a mechanism of some kind, but uh, mm -hmm. the good news is the person. And the fact that, that the person that has been sent as our Savior is God's uh, own Son is just the best news we, we could ever receive because it's in this person that we know our salvation really is affected and, and achieved. There's no doubt about it if it's the, uh, the Son of God that's, that's bringing it about. Mm -hmm. And this chapter in particular focuses on the importance of understanding his true nature and that has been the source of what we've come to know as many heresies in the life of the church over the centuries right that's true because the the mystery of the incarnation is a mystery and so it's not going to be understood totally by us and of course in our scientific age we'd like to analyze it and figure out how many parts of this and how many parts of that you know go to make up the whole and it's much larger, deeper than that, the, the mystery of Jesus, uh, God and man. We meet him in the Gospels, and we begin to get to know him, but it dawns on us, with the help of the Holy Spirit, just who is the, this person, Jesus, that we meet in the Gospels. And then, of course, the church's reflection on that over many centuries helps us deepen our understanding, but it's still way beyond what we can totally comprehend. 
in this catechism, they make a point of emphasizing that the Gospels tell us what we can know about Jesus, it, it, that there is so much revealed about God through his actions that, of course, no wonder we must ponder them in prayer, and it can take a whole lifetime, but they're all contained in the Gospels. Jesus is accessible. He's understandable. Not totally, as we say, you know, in, in the mystery of the incarnation, but the whole point, I suppose, if we could put it that way, of God sending his son is, is so that there could be a point of connection, in this case, beautifully a person of connection who others in his public ministry could see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears, understand, connect with in a very human and personal way. And so that's the person that we begin to access even now, so many years after the public ministry of Jesus, we're able to meet him in the Gospels. And the written word of God proclaimed in the liturgy or in, in some other setting, it's, it's one of the occasions when the living person, Jesus, is revealed and offered to us for our knowledge and so that we can listen to his teaching, witness his good works as others before us have done, and, and then respond with generous hearts. The average seeker, the, the Christian, the Catholic even, will see things on, let's just say, cable television. They'll show stories about who was Jesus really, and they'll use sources outside of the Gospels. They'll use uh, the, the things that have been called the Gnostic Gospels though, and all kinds of different speculation. And yet that's not really uh, what we should be looking at when we really want to know him. We are curious about him, and that's a good thing. And, and the fact that so many others are curious too is a very positive thing. But it's true the Gospels give us a very limited picture of Jesus. It's a very rich one. We are, again, with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the interpretation and reflection of the church able to sort of fill in some of the gaps, not in terms of all the details so much, but in terms of, of an understanding of the person of Jesus. But we really do see the, the limited value of, of some of the, the things that people seem to, to, you know, to use or to seek out in terms of this understanding. We are able to make use of, of a lot of just historical knowledge and an understanding of life and culture in the time of Jesus and at the time of his public ministry. And that, again, just helps to make him more accessible. And we realize that in so many ways his life was very simple, very ordinary, and mm -hmm. that his relationships and his responsibilities for a big part of his life were not so different from our own. And again, I think that's the point, that's the connection. We're not speaking of someone who is so completely different from ourselves that he is uh, unknowable or, or in, uh, inaccessible, that he can't be met or known. Mm. Some of those programs will reveal subtly what has been, uh, once again, been a part of the church or outside of the church for the last 2,000 years in those heresies. Mm -hmm. In particular, there are three that are stated in the catechism. The first is Gnosticism, which denied the humanity of Christ. Can you help us understand Gnosticism, what that means? Right. There, I, there aren't too many people parading around these days claiming to be Gnostics, but, mm -hmm. uh, but it's an easy thing to sort of drift into in any age. The heresy can be described in many ways, but I think there were, traditionally there was a sense that, that humanity, that a, that a human body or, or human nature would just not be a fit vessel for divinity to, to present itself, and so in some sense beneath God's dignity, you know, to really take on a human nature. And so perhaps they might have seen that God was sort of putting on a costume, a human costume, but not really taking on a human nature. The Son of God didn't take on a human nature. You can understand why people would 
think that way. Mm-hmm. In, in a sense, it, it sort of is another way of saying, well, oh, God couldn't have been as good and loving on our behalf as the church claims that he is because th- right. this would just be too much. Well, in a sense, it is too much. That's, you know, it is good news. that It's not too much for God. But, you know, in our way of looking at things, we, we just think, well, wow, that's beyond imagination, that God would become man. But that's exactly what happened, and, and that's the beautiful mystery of the Incarnation. The next heresy that would be brought forward kind of bounces off of that, and it's Arianism. In that one, we probably see it's more prevalent. Arianism has been a problem that has plagued the church for centuries. Right. Again, that's uh, an ancient heresy in the church, but we people, I think, still sort of dabble in, the, in this way of, of thinking. That there, in a sense, was this word that became flesh, that, that God's word was enfleshed somehow, but that the, the human manifestation that, that people saw was um, maybe a very high form of creation, but really not, not divine. Created as we all are, but created by someone totally other, but, you know, by, by God. So as the church counters the Arian heresy, and it was finally in the Council of Nicaea that there was an articulation, really, of sort of, what, in a sense, what was wrong with the heresy, but also then what is right, what do we mm-hmm. believe, and, and that's where we begin to hear language where the church expresses that Jesus was really God, is God, begotten, not made, one in substance with the Father, one in being with the Father, it's stated in various ways. But that the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is not other than God, not a created being separate from God, but one one in being. Yeah, I think where we might see Arianism maybe is that when we say that Jesus was, he was a great prophet for God, like Buddha, like, like Muhammad, but he was not God. He was just one of his great prophets. And making him very human but not divine. We still battle that because we hear that all the time still. Sure. And, and that, it's there that the mystery of redemption begins to limp, if that were true, because it would be impossible for a creature to accomplish redemption as Christ has done through his death and resurrection. And so, as you say, we're left with wonderful teachings, perhaps a very good example of how to live, but just one more creature, one more man who maybe lived well but died, and, and that, was, that was the end of it. That's how you get that slippery slope, then all things like the Da Vinci Code become very popular, and people, it kind of, they can kind of slide it. Well, that kind of makes sense. Maybe, maybe that's what happened. But, but then again, every Sunday now, we, we kind of rail against that because in our creed, we say consubstantial. It, that's a, a word that some said, well, people will never understand it, but it's one of those that, it's not that difficult, is it? Well, yes and no. <laughs> no but but it's, um, it's great because it does cause us to recall that uh, there have been times in history, and maybe, maybe we, we could uh, fall into it ourselves, where we think that, that Jesus is a separate creature from the Father. This reminds us that they are consubstantial and that they're one in being uh, from the beginning. Yes, same in substance, I think it is. St. John of the Cross uses that term as well, that, mm-hmm. that it's the substance, that Jesus is the same substance as the Father. And so that's what, maybe what we're saying when we say consubstantial? <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of like that. Again, it's, it, the, uh-huh. the words fail. You know, it's, it's, it, we, we can't uh, capture it exactly. But saints and all of us do just do reflect on it and try to allow ourselves to be drawn more fully into the mystery. 
and trust that what God has revealed about himself, particularly in and through Jesus Christ, that that means salvation for us and that God's saving plan is marvelous beyond anything that we could imagine or put together. And the, the how it works, you might say, is beyond our uh, comprehension. It, it's a matter of faith. At the same time, we don't say, well, it's too big, I don't care, because it intimately involves us. And that's the whole point, I could say, I suppose, of God sending his own son to share our human nature so that we can get it. We can mm-hmm. connect with him, we can relate with him. He relates with us right here where we are, shares our humanity and everything but sin. Mm-hmm. And so even though it's a big mystery, it's very, very accessible in the humanity and the humility of Christ. Mm. The other heresy they point out in the Catechism, now here's one of those words I'm kind of glad we no longer use, really. It's Nestorianism. <laughs> it denied the unity of Jesus Christ as God and man. And this is a kind of important one for us because it also reflects about the mother of God. Right. It, it led, to, again, to the articulation by, uh, by the church of the unity of Jesus. He's one person, one divine person with a divine nature and a, and a human nature. But it, as you say, it has something also to say then about who Mary is and how she fits into the economy of salvation and how she fits in, into God's plan. And so was the Council of Ephesus responding to this heresy in the 5th century that began to use the title, which we translate sort of loosely, the mother of God, Theotokos, the God-bearer, that is only one person who we call Jesus Christ. And he became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so Mary is his mother, really. So we're able to honor her with that, uh, with that title. But when we use the title, it's also a reminder to us that, that we don't claim this heretical notion that she was the mother of this human person, but then there was also this sort of divine twin or something. I don't know. Again, it's, it just, it's hard to, to really put it into words. But the integrity of Jesus' divinity and, and humanity is what this heresy was, was denying. As we'll see in the chapters to come, the importance of understanding that he was both God and man, that the duality of that is essential for his saving act for us and encountering his person who he remains today. That's true. And even the word duality is a, is a unity mm-hmm. also, and you know maybe a more appropriate word. But, he had, but again, the, the church's way of describing it, articulating it, is that Jesus has a human nature and a divine nature. One person, though. He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He's existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity, and at a particular moment in time, took on human flesh, a human nature, in the womb of Mary. And he still, of course, has that human nature. He hasn't given it up. So when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, it's the the person who is both human and divine. A meditation found in the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults. Why did the Word become flesh? The Word became flesh to save us from sin and reconcile us to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. John chapter 3 verse 16 By the Incarnation we are made aware of the depths of God's love for us. In this way, 
the love of God was revealed to us, God sent His only Son into the world so that we might have life through Him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 When the Son of God became man, He became a model of holiness for us. This is my commandment. Love one another as I love you. John chapter 15, verse 12 God became man that we may partake in the divine nature. He has bestowed on us the precious and very great promises so that through them you may come to share in the divine nature. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4We probably have addressed this before, and we probably will again, but can we trust those Gospels? Can we? They're not just nice stories or a myth or, I mean, can we trust what they witnessed to was true? Yes, is the simple answer to that. The Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. has uh, inspired the authors of the Gospels. The Church has affirmed that they are Gospels truly of of, uh, our Savior Jesus Christ. And they were compiled, developed in the first generation of the church from the accounts of people uh, who were there, who saw all these things or heard them and remembered them. And then the, the church, again, guided by the Holy Spirit, has affirmed that, that the four Gospels that in which we meet Jesus in a particular way in the scriptures, that they are authentic and they are to be believed. And so we enshrine them, you know, in various ways. We enshrine them in the, in the liturgy. They're, they're mm-hmm. proclaimed there. The experience of the church is that we're not only hearing about Jesus from a long time ago, he's actually being revealed, presented to us in a very personal way when the Gospels are proclaimed. We meet him in a, it's a different context, but it's the same Jesus always if we're reflecting on the Gospels ourselves. So perhaps we um, have the Bible with us before the Blessed Sacrament, maybe for Lexio Divina or just for reading over the, the gospel that will be proclaimed the, you know, the following Sunday. So even though we're, we're by ourselves, it's not a liturgical setting. The words of the gospel and the presentation of, of the person of Jesus is real and, and very powerful for us there. Again, it's God's desire. The gospels are one way of, of showing it that Jesus be accessible mm-hmm. to us and to not just to a few people in, in one place, but that now in, in every place in every age that, that Jesus can be, can be known and loved and listened to and followed in the Gospels. In chapter 7, entitled The Good News, God Has Sent His Son, it emphasizes the point it's important to understand that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Help us to fully appreciate the gravitas of that statement. Well, it's important for us to know it because it's true, and it's this great manifestation of God's will for our salvation that uh, the second person of of the Trinity become man uh, for our salvation. And so we go back to what I alluded to earlier, that if the death of Jesus and his resurrection were something, in a sense, being accomplished by God alone, that there wasn't a human person involved in that, then we might say, well, there's God out there doing his Mm -hmm. thing, but it it doesn't really touch us, and how can we access that? How can we you know, think that it, that it might apply to us. If Jesus were human and, and not divine, so a great prophet, a, a great leader, uh, as we said before, his uh, crucifixion might have been a very heroic, generous act on his part, but that would have been 
the end of him. And without his divine nature, his, the resurrection wouldn't have the, the power to open the gift of eternal life to every person in every age. So that uh, beautiful unity of humanity and, and divinity in, in Jesus Christ is what accomplishes our redemption in the Paschal mystery, that it's Jesus, God and man, who gives his life on the altar of the cross, atones for, for our sins, pays the price for our salvation. There's so many beautiful ways of, of expressing it. But Jesus is not dead now. As the Son of God, he's risen from the dead, living gloriously now, still offering worship to the Father as he did on the altar of the cross, but now uh, gloriously for, uh, for all eternity. And it, it's Jesus, God, and man who continues this work of salvation. And so it, it is that truth that Jesus is God and, and man, both it's at the heart of the, of the Paschal mystery, and that gives the power and the reality to the blessing of our salvation that Jesus is able to accomplish. A prayer found in the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can never cease to speak of Christ, for he is our truth and our light. Pope Paul VI. It's really quite marvelous when you think about it, Archbishop, when you, how much he must love us, that he would come down not only to, to suffer for us, but to understand us, to say that he, he would have sore feet like we would, that we, he would understand what it, it's like to be hungry, that he knows what cold is. He understands because he That he, he obeyed his parents. That exactly. Just, oh, sure. You know, to become an infant, to be, to be a helpless child in the womb of, of Mary. At every step, you know, no matter how we look at it, we do see it in that mystery of the Incarnation how much God does love us and how much he values us, we might say, how, how, much, uh, mm-hmm. how important humanity is in God's plan, what great dignity we have as mm-hmm. human beings, men and women, created in the image and likeness of God. The Incarnation just demonstrates that to us so powerfully. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Any final thoughts on this particular chapter? No, but the chapter is titled Good News, and it is good news. Jesus has come to save us all. We hear the good news in the gospel, and it was never meant for us only. Part of Jesus' commission to us is that we not only follow him ourselves, but that we also proclaim the gospel to others so that others might know of his saving love for us and allow themselves to be drawn into that gift of salvation. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you, Your Excellency. You've been listening to the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas. To learn more about the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults, go to usccb.org, the website for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for the United States Catholic Catechism for Adults with His Excellency, Archbishop George Lucas.